So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11, up to 16. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this commandment without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Thank you very much, Robert, for uh, praying for us. Thank you, Andres, for, for reading. Please do keep um, 1 Timothy 6 open before you. Uh, may I just welcome you if you have joined us since the beginning of service. Hope you find the seat well and we are ready to, um, to listen to what God has to say to us. It, it, it is indeed a joyful, joyful Sunday today, as we start the, the you know the, the church membership thing. Uh, now there are all sorts of memberships out there: club memberships, organization memberships, various societies where you can belong to. And just out of curiosity, this week I looked up some pretty interesting organizations that you can you can join to. Turns out there are Dead People's Society. I think it comes from India. I, I can be corrected, but I, I, I get that. So there is Salad and Dressing Society. I wonder what people do there. Eat a lot of salads. Nicolas Cage Society. Why him alone? I haven't heard of any other uh, actor society. Nicolas Cage Society. Well, <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> Of course, you have heard already Flat Earth Society. Any supporters here? Anyways, let's not pick up the controversy. And by far, one of the most interesting societies that I stumbled upon very recently, and was pointed out by someone actually close to this church, is the society called Birds Are Not Real. <laughs> Turns out the furry flying things you see are not birds at all. They are predator drones. <laughs> now, do you know why they are sitting on high-voltage wires? Yes, they're charging. Exactly, they are charging. Now, this is bizarre, but people, people like to spend time and you know, be together with such other, other people. Now, friends, is church, is church just one of these many weird societies out there? Are their members slightly wasted crackpots parted with reality? Is that what church is? is? Is that what we are here today? 
Well, as weird as church sometimes might seem, it is something very, very different. Church is not the invention of men, first of all. Church is unique. We have almost finished uh, our series in 1 Timothy, and it has all been about church. Here is our key verse and the heart of what church is. Flip back to chapter 3, verse 15, to, to see it again. 3.15, our key verse, that church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The living God has assembled people for himself through the gospel of Jesus. The momentous news about Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, this Paul says is truly transformational. The church then being transformed and shaped by the gospel boosts the gospel witness to the world. That is the church. And to be part of church, it is a very high calling, isn't it? As Paul ties up his letter, he gives an almost summary list of what it means to be Christian, what it means to belong to church. So we are not supposed to be weird, but first of all, we are supposed to be different. And secondly, we are supposed to be thinking differently. That is seen in our action and that is seen in our thinking. So firstly, Christians, Christians must act differently. There should be a visible difference between, between us who know Jesus and someone who doesn't know Jesus yet. Verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. But firstly, O man of God is used rightly to refer particularly to the church leaders. In the Old Testament, we see men like Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Samuel, King David, they all are called O man of God. But Paul doesn't mean to get off the hook the rest of the church, of course. Why? There is a hint in this letter. Find chapter 4 and 12 and what Timothy is supposed to be. Do you see 4.12? He's supposed to set an example. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So the church is to follow. The church is to also be and respond to everything that Timothy is charged with. So Paul gives quite a few commands here, and also he gives quite a few commands here to the whole church. And I think they're best understood when coupled in pairs. So flee and pursue, the first pair, and fight and take hold of, a second pair. So firstly, to be Christian is to be, ready, in flight mode. I love this, in flight mode. But we're going to define it slightly differently. Flee, Paul says. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. What things? What things are we supposed to flee? We are supposed to reflect on the immediate context of chapter 6. That Timothy is to flee the love of money, as we saw last week, and the desire to be rich. Yes, these things. But also... 
He's supposed to flee the mentality of unhealthy controversies and quarrels about words, uh, uh, as the false teachers did. Now, these things are not to be trifled with. No. When they appear at the horizon, flee, says Paul. Flee. Do not entertain the idea of befriending them. Now, one time I was helping a friend in some countryside landscape works. And on the lunch break at the table with his family, we somehow started to talk about what do you do when you are in the woods and you're approached by a bear. And, one, and so we were chatting about this, that certainly one should be dropping dead and not moving, and, and preferably with your hat to north. I'm not sure how you calculate quickly where is north. But apparently when animals die in the woods, they die with their head towards north. So if you see a bear and you sort of dive towards north and don't move, you have a chance of a survival. And so the lunch break was over and I got back to my landscape, you know, shovel, shoveling work. And in a few minutes or so, from my right, I hear this sound. And I turn my head. And there's this Caucasian shepherd dog, huge, like two bears. And I, I literally thought that I am going to be dead that day. So I put myself in flight mode and dived with my head. <laughs> I don't know which, which direction. Of course, you know, and the, the dog approached me. He kind of licked my hair, my, my ear. And the landlord, he was laughing his head off. I was so embarrassed. But you know what? The only thing that didn't occur to me at that time was, can I befriend this friendly Caucasian shepherd dog? No. Flee. Put yourself in flight mode. Drop dead. Friends, when it comes to love of money, when it comes to the desire to be rich, uh, or wanting just a little bit more, as we saw last week, Paul says, we have to be different. Let us not think of befriending the love of money. Let us not be thinking of, um, of what the unbelieving world thinks about our resolution. No. We have to enable the flight mode. We have to drop dead between, before these, these things. The pursuit of wealth. Be it the desire to climb the corporate ladder or the desire to climb the uh, real estate property ladder be it the desire for luxury things or grander lifestyle, we already saw how this desire plunges people into all sorts of um, harmful desires, ruin, and ultimately, ultimately destruction. But how do I do that? How do I battle the seduction of wealth? What does fleeing look like given that I simply can't Flee to the place where there is no money. Now, are we just called to really you know, move out to the woods and, and camping and hunting and eating what we hunt without no money? Of course, we can't do that. Well, not, not at least most of us. No. Well, Paul says we flee by pursuing, pursuing something different. We flee uh, one set of values and lifestyle by pursuing another set of values 
and lifestyle. So the second half of 11, pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Well, let's think for a moment about this list so that it doesn't just wash over our heads as, you know, as, as these names. It seems to me that this list, too, is best understood when coupled in pairs. Righteousness and godliness, faith and love, and steadfastness and gentleness. Well, I think the key pair here is faith and love. We have already seen how Paul joins these two together in 1 Timothy, haven't we? Now flip back to chapter 1 and verse 5, where Paul states his aim, aim of his ministry. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul seems to be suggesting that love issues from faith. It is trust in God that leads to love. So we should be asking ourselves a question. Because of what I know to be true about God that I'm trusting in, how should that change what I love? Right? Why not apply this to the subject, again, of money? There's quite a lot of money talk towards the end of 1 Timothy, I'm afraid. How can I use money in such a way that it shows that I love God and I love others rather than I love money? Now, how can I use my, my funds? My friend from Pardog of a church, he told me of a conversation between him and his work colleague who was utterly, utterly shocked and wondered upon hearing that my friend is giving a substantial amount of his income, you know, monthly or so, to the church. He was shocked beyond words. His thinking was, right, I mean, giving, sometimes giving is okay. I mean, you get two euros around Christmas, you know, in the box, and that should, that should do, that should do. But more? That's just ludicrous. Who would do that? Well, anyone wouldn't do that, Paul says. No, only those who love God would do that. My, my, my friend's giving said something about what he loves. He loves God and wants to see gospel advance in, in, into other people's lives. And that's why he gives, no matter what the world thinks about that. Now, how can we use money in such a way that it shows that we love God and we love others rather than money? Now, for Christians, the gospel will always shape what they love. Well, maybe, maybe then there is a similar pattern in other, in other pairs. Um, so, secondly, righteousness and godliness. I don't know whether you know what righteousness means. It's a very important word for Paul, righteousness. Righteousness means being in right relationships with God. The Bible says that God gives this standing as a gift. We cannot and we should not try to earn it. Righteousness is given us through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. But how should we 
pursue righteousness. Now, how is the gift of righteousness seen in practice? That's the question. Now, how is, for instance, the gift of singing seen in practice when we think about the local church? Of course, it is seen in practice by singing out loud, or maybe not so loud sometimes. <laughs> Similarly, in the same way, the pursuit of righteousness is seen in godliness. Godliness is the practical outworking of righteousness. And of course, godliness is what the whole of 1 Timothy has been about so far. We have seen how Jesus coming to save sinners has made us right with God. It's a gift. And now this righteousness shows up in our everyday relationships. And we have been thinking about that for some time at home with our wives and children who, who are married. Relationships with our flatmates and uni mates, dorm mates. Relationships with others in the lecture hall or in the office. And of course, of course, in the church. So righteousness and godliness. And then there is the third pair, steadfastness and gentleness. Steadfastness is a, is a great reminder that Christian life is a marathon. It's not merely a sprint. I remember someone telling me a few weeks after my, my baptism and, and joining the church quite a few years ago, you have started your Christian life at a pace of a sprinter, someone said to me. But remember that it is a marathon that we have to run. These words stick to me ever since. Now, friends, maybe you have managed to avoid this or that temptation this week, and that is very, very good. I'm glad to hear that you are fighting. It's very good, but now keep going. Keep going. It's a marathon. Keep fleeing temptations by pursuing righteousness, by pursuing godliness, faith, and love, and do that by being steadfast day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in, year out, and decades, decades in and decades out. Steadfastness. But what is it about steadfastness that really, really matters? What should it look like as we run the marathon? And Paul says that our steadfastness should be seen in our gentleness. Now, I don't know about you, but this is where I struggle most. Well, I am not naturally a gentle person, believe it or not. I have to work on it very, very hard. And this is a, a particular challenge to me, especially in light of what Paul has been saying so far in chapter 6. When I come across people who teach a different doctrine, it is very hard for me to be gentle and meek like Jesus. Very hard. I rather feel like being John and, and, and James, who wanted to call a consuming fire from the sky to burn these guys. And we're rebuked by Jesus, so <laughs> wrong, wrong. You see, it does matter how we pursue 
it does matter. It does matter what are the means to an end. It matters how we deal with difficult people. It matters how we deal with difficult situations. Gentleness matters. In our world, gentleness is often perceived as weakness. But Paul says gentleness is not weakness at all. It is actually a great, great strength. Not hitting back takes a great strength. Not quarreling about words and proving my point all the time takes a great strength. Not slandering, not causing fractions is a sign of great, great strength. It is so hard not to lash out sometimes or not to respond with, with the same harshness, isn't it? It's very hard. But Christians should show steadfastness in their flight from sin by being gentle. And this steadfast flight should be characterized indeed by gentleness. Now, it is rather ironic, I acknowledge, but not only Christians' flight from sin and the pursuit of godliness should be gentle, but so our fight of the faith should be. So here is our second pair in verse 12. Fight and take hold of. Glance at verse 12. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of eternal life. Now, in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Paul has already charged Timothy. Do you see in, in chapter 1, 18 and 19, turn to it. Paul says, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Paul says, false teaching matters because it leads to false living. And it leads to people, it leads people astray and into destruction. So waging the good warfare is actually very important. Fight the good fight is crucial. Now, you will say, well, how, how does that fit together? Being gentle doesn't mean being silent, okay? We have to speak up against false teaching. We have to step in when Christ is dishonored. But again, it matters how we do. Neither Paul or Jesus suggest that Christian fight is taking up AR-15 rifle or hijacking a plane to crush. No. Paul is very careful in choosing the words because the Holy Spirit is very, very careful in choosing the words, how they describe the fight. We have to fight the good fight of faith. What is the faith? It is the good deposit of verse 20 of chapter 6. It is the gospel of Christ that leads to godliness of the good servant of Christ. So that's the fight that we have to fight. But how do we wage the good warfare of faith? So Paul says, finally, by taking hold of heaven. Verse 12, take hold of eternal, of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What is that drives you? What is 
that gets you going. Now, Paul says, instead of taking hold of this world, like the false teachers did, Paul says, Christians should be different. Resist the temptation to be argumentative or pushing your agenda or pushing others around. If materialism is, is your thing, um, resist the temptation to buy more and more stuff. I know Christmas is coming. It's crazy, right? It's so, so hard. And we want to, you know, make other people happy. We want to spoil ourselves a little bit, I know. But resist the temptation. How do I do that? And Paul says, by taking hold of eternal life to which you are called, to which you bore witness at your conversion. Well, it's a powerful reminder, isn't it? Remember how you were when you just met Jesus. I don't know how many years, how many tens of years that was, but do you remember that time? How he was your all and everything, how you did not need anything else but him. You know, in, in the words of Lord of the Rings, he was your precious. <laughs> he was your precious alone. So continue holding to Jesus unashamedly, publicly, because eternal life is Jesus. Hear Jesus' words from John 17. He is eternal life. And this is eternal life, Jesus says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Continue holding to Jesus. Now, maybe you are someone here today who does not yet have Jesus. Now, why, why wouldn't you? That is my question. Why wouldn't you? Why would you, you refuse an offer of eternal life? Why? Paul says, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like me, sinners like all of us here. How did he save us? By dying the death that we deserved, I deserved, and by raising to new life, so to never die again. Jesus is eternal life, and you can get eternal life. Here, now, today. But to the rest of us, through the rest of us, may I ask, just how was your, your life this past week? As you just quietly reflect in your heart, in your mind, how was it? Now, friends, if you would say, oh, it was all right, you know, it was all right, nothing special. I was actually, you know, wasn't actually much thinking about it, just, just got on with my business now, if, if that's your initial response, I think the alarm bells should be ringing somewhere there. Why? Because Paul says our Christian life should be active. It should be conscious. It should be engaged. Okay? It should be flight from the pursuit of worldliness, conscious pursuit of godliness. It should be set fast but gentle fight of faith. It should be conscious daily choice to take hold of heaven rather than taking hold of this world. Now, if that's not the case, there is some reflecting and some repenting to be done. Now, having said that, how do we make progress? How do we make progress? Well, the commands here are real, but sometimes it feels, or most of the times, it actually feels like two steps forward, 
three steps backwards. What will fuel our godly actions and conduct, friends? It seems often so impossible to make any progress as Christians. And that is why Paul finishes by saying that godly living flows out of godly thinking. Yes, Christians must act differently. Yes. But it will happen if they think differently. I know that it's not the whole truth. Why? Because it's not that our thinking saves us, okay? No, our thinking doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. But right thinking is a is an very important, crucial ingredient of saving faith. So Christians must think differently. Glance at verse 13. Let's read on from verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Now, friends, what we need to see here, see here is that Paul is not moralizing And what do I mean by that? Paul is not telling um, the Ephesian Christians or us here today, yes, welcome, uh, just, you know, to pull up our socks or, you know, just, just try harder, just try harder and you'll be okay. No, Paul is not saying that. If he would be, he would be no different from the false teachers there. Paul says it all comes from the gospel of God. He's in our motivation. He is our cause. So, a source, I'm sorry. And Paul wants us to remember, he wants us to remember that, particularly two things. Remember that God gives life. Now, everything that we have comes from God. Friends, we do confess, we do confess that in one of the songs we sing here on Sundays. Do you notice? You give me healing and grace now, all that my heart belong, uh, longs for. It comes from God. Our food, our health, our everything comes from God. So let us confess that. Yes, in, in the Sunday singing, of course, but also in the Monday living. Is it hard? Yes, it is hard. But look at Jesus, Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Let us think of Jesus more often in our daily living, in our daily walk. Are we struggling with fleeing from sin? Look to Jesus. Are we struggling to be loving and gentle? Look to Jesus. Are we struggling to fight and speak up for Jesus? Again, look to Jesus. But not just as an example, the key phrase here is who in his testimony. Does this ring any bell? Turn to chapter 2, verse 5. Jesus is not only our example. So in 2.5, the testimony of Jesus isn't just this example. It is his ransom on the cross for the sins of the world. Let's see. 
For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So what is testimony? Testimony is about that Jesus is ransom. This is gospel. Jesus entered into the world to save sinners like me, sinners like you. So we are to act differently in light of his coming, Paul says. But also, Paul closes here by saying that we should also very much consider his second coming, hence the advent. So remember, Jesus comes back. Verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Now, commandment. Commandment summarizes all that Paul has been saying in his letter about the gospel and about the godliness. That's commandment. Now, how does Paul motivate Timothy and us? Wait for Jesus. Wait for him. He is coming. The advent of Jesus will happen, no matter what the world is saying, no matter how hard the world is laughing at it. He is coming. How should we Christians respond? Paul models that here by praising. By praising God the Father. Jesus is going to be revealed by the Father, which he will display at the proper time. And therefore, he who is the blessed and the only Savior, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Did you notice how exclusive Paul is here? God is the only sovereign. The only sovereign. There is no other God but the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. And God alone is immortal. All other so-called gods are nuisance, inventions, mortals. Well, when Paul speaks about God, he, of course, speaks about the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here, here is the shortest, shortest way to summarize the, the exclusivity of the triune God. God is not alone, but God alone is God. God is not alone, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but God alone is God. Now, the world looks elsewhere for life, but God is the only source of life. There is nowhere else to look but in God. And friends, how can we share in this life, again, as we come to close, through Jesus being our mediator? How can others share in this life of the God Almighty in this Advent through the same mediator, Jesus? That is why we are thinking about talking to people about Jesus. That is why I'm so excited about this potential student dinner with, with some of the friends from RSU, where we get an opportunity to talk about Jesus around the, the meal because 
God is the Savior who wants to save all people through the mediator, Jesus. Now, friends, what a privilege it is to be a church. What a privilege it is to be part of the household of God. The privilege of holding up and holding out the precious, precious offer of God's salvation for all people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess indeed the great, great is the mystery of godliness, and this is Jesus. Father, thank you for the precious gospel of Jesus being your son who came into the world to save sinners like us, undeserving, unworthy people. But thank you for granting us eternal life in him. And so, Father, please help us today, consciously, actively, be different for you in the way we live, in our pursuit. Father, please, please do help us strive for godliness. And Father, we know how hard it is. We know how sinful we often are. So we, we pray that you would help by your spirit as we stick to your word and stick together as a church family and help us to sharpen one another like, like iron sharpens an iron, to think, think differently about you. Father, we praise your name, the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen.